1921, the Dutch pastor Upke Noordmans published an essay called Predestination. It was the year in which both Benjamin Warfield and Herman Barfunk died, in just a few months after Abraham Kuyper, which meant that, at least for some, the three major Reformed theologians of their generation had all passed away. It was still about two decades before Karl Barth's groundbreaking doctrine of election. After Barfunk's first visit to America, he wrote a travel report, Meine Reis naar Amerika, in Dutch. He did not hear much about election and justification in the sermons, he said, since the sermons here were mostly about morality. But then it was only a two-month visit. Invited by Warfield, he also visited Princeton, where he would return once more in 1908, when invited to give the Stone Lectures. His impression about the lack of uh, sermons on election would not apply to his friend Warfield, who often wrote on predestination. According to a detailed study on predestination in the Reformed Confessions, Warfield saw the Reformation as a great revival of Augustinianism, and he regarded the doctrine of predestination as the central doctrine of the Reformation. For him, predestination meant the divine decree of double predestination, both eternal election and eternal reprobation. He was therefore critical of those at the time who argued that many Reformed confessions, including the Heidelberg Catechism, endorsed merely the positive and comforting side of election, while remaining wisely silent on the decree of reprobation. Even if reprobation is not mentioned, it should still be presupposed, said Warfield. At the same time, Warfield could speak movingly about the positive and comforting side himself. In an essay called Election, he speaks passionately about the grace by which we are saved. Grace is about power, about love, and about gratuitousness, he says. Grace is the powerful love of benevolence and very emphatically love to the ill-deserving, appealing to Romans. We may sometimes feel to the urge to wonder to whom God extends this gratuitous grace and why, but these are not wise questions, he said. It is better to leave it to God to do just what God does with God's elected grace. The sermon on John 3.16, called God's Immeasurable Love, originally preached in the chapel of Princeton Seminary, also speaks remarkably about God's gratuitous love. 
The term world in John 3.16 is used not to suggest that the world is so big, Warfield says, but that the world is so bad that it takes a great kind of love to love it at all. The passage emphasizes that this love is a saving love, not a love merely tending towards salvation. This love is great and powerful and all-conquering and attains its end, he says. Warfield admits that the text does not tell us that this love works out its end completely and with full effect on each and every person. But neither will the text allow us to suppose that God grants God's immeasurable love only to a few abstracted from the world while God permits the world itself to fall away to its destruction. The text does not say that God has loved some out of this world, he says, but that God has loved the world and we must rise to the height of this divine universalism, Warfield says. It is the world that God has loved, this sinful world of ours, a declaration which could not be true, he says, if the world were lost and only a select few were saved out of it, since the purposes of God do not fail, he says. The elect are therefore not the residue, the ashes, so to speak, of the burnt-up world gathered sadly by the Creator after the catastrophe is over. No, through all history, one increasing purpose runs, he says, namely that the kingdoms of this earth become ever more the kingdom of God and Christ. The process may be slow, and the progress may appear to our impatient eyes to lag, but to our astonished eyes shall be revealed nothing less than a saved world. Some rash expositors, Warfield says, may insist that the division between essentially good and essentially bad people is an ultimate fact, but that would be a grave misunderstanding, he writes. God is saving the world, not some individuals out of the world, by a process of reformation and recreation. The new heavens and earth will not be another heaven and earth, but the old heaven and earth renewed and regenerated. Not merely the individual is regenerated, but the world fabric itself, he explains. During the process, much may be discarded, but at the completion, the world shall be saved. This wicked world of sinful human beings transformed into a world of righteousness, he says. We should therefore never measure the saving work of God by what has already been accomplished 
in these unripe days in which our lot is cast, since the sands of time have not yet run out, he says. This vision of the saved world is the vision of the consummated purpose of the immeasurable love of God. In a review of Barfunk's study of the secret des loves, the assurance of faith, by Warfield, one hears similar tones. Warfield appreciates the wide-minded conception of the mission of Christianity in the world of the school of Barfunk and Kuiper. Based on their views of common grace, Christians should appreciate that everything is beautiful and good and to be loved, believing that every creature of God is good and is not to be rejected but received with thanksgiving. Warfield misses in Barfing's study the explicit correlation of this noble and truly reformed conception of the Christian's relation to the world with the organic character of the redemptive work and its eschatological outlook. He misses the fact that Barfink does not speak in the same broad way about salvation also, but only about creation. It is only as we realize, says Warfield, that God is saving the world and not merely one individual here and there out of the world, that the pronounced significance of the earthly life to the Christian can be truly apprehended, he argues. The reformed attitude to the world is not individualistic and atomistic, but organic, he says. And because Barfunk fails to make explicit reference to the character of this redemptive process, Uninstructed readers, readers who do not know better, uninstructed readers may perhaps miss the reformation of the world after the plan of God and thereby its gradual transformation into God's kingdom. And therefore readers may fail to catch the real ground why earthly life is so significant to Christians, namely that it is rooted not merely in creation, but in salvation. Readers may even mentally agree with the unintelligent criticism, he says, so often expressed against the reformed doctrine of election, as if it leaves the earthly life without significance, a criticism, Warfield says, obviously without any meaning. So in spite of his own views on double predestination and eternal reprobation, Warfield reminds one of the way in which Barfunk also spoke about election in his reformed dogmatics, about hope for even the most wretched, and about recognizing even the most unworthy and degraded human beings as objects of God's eternal love. After all, Warfield described Barfink's reform dogmatics as 
the most valuable treatise on dogmatics written during the last quarter of a century, worthy of the best traditions of reformed thought and reformed eloquence. In 1921, the Dutch pastor, Upke Noordmans, published an essay called Predestination. His was the voice of a new generation of reformed theology, reclaiming the tradition of Augustine and Calvin and the doctrine of election as heart of the church. Noordmans is also concerned with the difference between election and morality, which Barfunk encountered on his brief journey in America. Election takes us beyond morality, beyond good and evil, Nootmans says, not in the immoral sense of Nietzsche, where good and evil do no longer matter, but in a biblical sense, above good and evil, when God's spirit blows our conventional sense of morality apart, lifting our imagination above our everyday notions of good and evil to see something even higher. Our own inclination, Nootmans writes, is to fear this beyond and to resist this above. We only see the potential dangers, the scandal, and the stumbling blocks. And therefore we respond with resistance, he says, with objections and misgivings and protests. We do not trust election. We no longer feel safe and in control. We question whether God is fair, whether election is just, whether this message makes logical sense. We are shocked and offended by what seems to us arbitrary, contradicting our sense of morality, our natural sense of right and wrong. We find it difficult, he says, to recognize in Romans 9 to 11, one of the highlights of all Christian literature. Paul is here moved to mystical enrapture and adoration. Paul faces a fullness of love and wisdom that makes him burst into jubilation. He finds language to speak about God's unsearchable judgments and inscrutable ways of mercy and glory. Yet the church always hesitated and shied away from speaking like this, says Nootmans. The church failed to reach these heights. We are so used to our narrow-minded conventional moralities that we resist this freedom, he says. Our moral judgments are so harsh and prejudiced that they suffocate ourselves and smother others. Our morality is so boring and without imagination. The world of God's election could set us free for a higher morality, yet the church fears this freedom and this different world. We fail to appreciate that election calls us to the highest form of morality, 
above and beyond our own. That is why we experience Paul and the Gospels as different, Nordman says. We feel that the Gospels belong to our moral world and that the difficulties and the stumbling blocks belong to Paul. We find it difficult to follow Paul to the heights of his contemplation and we easily get stuck in what we see as his logical paradoxes. But compared to Paul, the Gospels seem to us like a world without paradoxes, a world which we understand much better. This is, however, a grave misunderstanding, Nootmans argues, to think that the Gospels is a world without election. In fact, in the Gospels, we encounter election in its purest form, as a complete blowing apart and radical broadening of our moral world. The Gospels, he writes, are vibrating with election, vibrating with the gratuitous mercies of God. In the Gospels, we have the most radical transvaluation of values imaginable, he says, using another notion of Nietzsche. In the Gospels, we encounter the real world of scandals and stumbling blocks. The fact that we find stumbling blocks in Paul rather than in the Gospels only shows our own narrow-mindedness. It reveals that we actually stand much closer to Paul without knowing it. The scandals and the difficulties that we experience when we read Paul are nothing compared to the scandals and difficulties we encounter in the Gospels. What is the logical paradox we sense when reading Romans 9 in comparison with Jesus when he loves sinners and publicans rather than moral and upright people? This scandal of the Gospels, this gratuitousness beyond good and evil, lies so far beyond our moral sensibilities that we just let it stand without even taking offense. It does not really disturb us. We forget to get upset, says Nootmans. We do not even sense the scandalous nature of the Gospels vibrating with election. For him, the Gospels are the real world of election and the real world of stumbling blocks. Here, God's higher morality conflicts with our small human moralities. We reduce grace to a principle, he says, and forget that election speaks about living people, real concrete people of flesh and blood. We see this election in Jesus in the Gospels, and it is something remarkable. In Jesus' welcoming of real people, we do not see indifference, neutrality, but preference for sinners, he says. The publican is for Jesus more useful in the kingdom than the Pharisee. We use our exegesis to soften these sharp edges of the gospel and to cool down this heat. 
we take the self-effacing attitude of the publican as meritorious and virtuous in order to make him somehow deserving of grace. That is why we should not use famous German or Dutch commentaries, writes Nordmans, to guide our interpretation, but r Russian novels in order to send something of the wretchedness and the hopelessness of these real people welcomed and included by Jesus in the Gospels. Once we recognize election at work in the Gospels, in the words and works of Jesus, we are far removed from rational objections and logical paradoxes, he says. Here we sense the power of divine sympathy. And here we stumble over the real stumbling blocks. What we encounter here is directed against us and against our moral sensibilities, against our world of good and evil, of us and them, of welcome and excluded, of acceptable in our eyes and wretched in our eyes. Here we encounter a reality, the reality that when the world is lost according to our moral calculations, it is not lost at all, says Nordmans. Of course, this election at work in the Gospels raises our reservations and our resistance. Were the objections of the eldest brother in the parable not understandable and fair? Were the incredulous and frustrated questions of those who worked long hours in the vineyard not justified? Is it not shocking and shattering to experience that Jesus is not neutral at all, but shows a special preference for those who are in need of conversion? Our well-known world of morality is suddenly threatened, undermined, blown away by the storm winds of the Spirit of God, Nordmans says. And it is no wonder that all apostles of morality through the centuries always felt deep repulsion at the doctrine of election. This repulsion is not explained by our logical dislike of determinism. It is rooted rather in divine election as the free and gracious and welcoming acceptance of those who in our eyes are morally wretched. It is this divine election, he says, that has correctly been called the heart of the church. Although the church scarcely ever understood this election, and although our ecclesiology seldom reflects this election at all. The real church is usually accommodated to our senses of morality. What the church calls the doctrine of election is usually reduced to some logical scheme. It is only on occasion that deep spiritual movements in history 
have challenged church and culture and made us experience something of this liberating and powerful movement of God's Spirit, bringing hope for even the most wretched, he says. 25 years later, Nootmans would return to where he broke off with these thoughts in 1921 and then develop them further in much more radical ways. In 1946, the Dutch pastor Upke Nootmans published another groundbreaking essay. It is just after the Second World War and he is thinking about the state of Protestantism at the time. The essay was called Sinner and Beggar. It was a short meditation, yet the key to a series of meditations that would follow over several years. It became the title essay of his first volume of meditations and much later the opening essay of the volume of his collected works with all his meditations. He returns to the Gospels vibrating with election. But this time the argument is even more penetrating and challenging for many indeed now a scandal and stumbling block. His title refers to two parables in Luke's Gospel. The Pharisee and the tax collector in Luke 18 and the rich man and Lazarus in Luke 16. The tax collector is the sinner, Lazarus is the beggar. He contrasts the church's interpretations of these two parables with one another. Both parables are well known, he says, yet the one about the sinner always seemed much more relevant to the church than the one about the beggar. Every Sunday, churches sit full of sinners, but beggars are seldom seen. When we hear the first parable, we immediately know that it concerns us. When we hear the second, we think of others. And it seems to him in 1946, at the time, as if God is changing all of that. God is giving the parable from Luke 16 an immediate relevance that is bringing many to new spiritual insight and experiences. Many are beginning to grasp that physical need may be more closely related to salvation than they ever assumed. This is his argument, this is the thrust of his comparison. The church has traditionally interpreted these two parables in different ways without be even being aware, he says. The two characters uh, in the, the one parable are normally seen as related to one another since the actions of the tax collector serve as judgment on the Pharisee. In the other parable, that is not the case. The harsh way in which Lazarus is painted does not lead the church to judgment on the rich man 
at whose gate the poor figure is lying. The high and mighty spirit of the Pharisee has something to do with salvation, but not the high and luxurious lifestyle of the rich man, he says. The tension between the two figures in Luke 18 has always intrigued the church uh, as the tension between sin and grace from Paul to the canons of Dort, says Nootmans. Yet between the two figures in Luke 16, the church hardly ever saw any tension. It is almost as if the great chasm between them later on in the parable, in the bosom of Abram, of that chasm already exists here on earth as well, while they are both alive, so that they have nothing to do with one another, rich man and Lazarus. The chasm seems to the church to exist by providence. There is nothing to do about that. It is simply the case. The one is rich, the other is a beggar. The church senses that it will be too dangerous even to begin to speculate or speak about whether they actually have something to do with one another. And therefore it plays no role. The church practices this difference in interpretation between the two parables for a very good reason, he says. After all, and he sort of cynically quotes the learned Adolf von Harnack's famous Das Wesen des Christentums, the, the essence of Christianity. When von Harnack said, Jesus knew something much more important than the wretchedness of poverty and misery namely the wretchedness of sin and something much more glorious than justice and compassion, namely an attitude of forgiveness, is von Harnack. In the respective histories of reception of these two parables, something strange therefore happened, Nootman's notes. The Pharisee disappeared from chapter 18 and was nowhere to be found in the church where everyone wanted to be tax collectors and regarded themselves as sinners. With the parable in Luke 16, it was different. Rich people did not disappear out of the church for fear of hell. And there was no movement at all to associate with Lazarus in his poverty. In Luke, the parable of the rich man, in the gospel, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus was intended as an attack on the deep chasm between rich and poor in our world, Nootman says. For Jesus, there is some form of link between the great chasm in the afterlife and the great chasm here and now between the rich man and Lazarus. The chasm at the end of the parable would not have been there were it not for the chasm at the beginning of the parable. In Luke, the parable is intended to challenge that and to change that. Abraham even says that the living know this very well. They do not need more information or persuasion since they can see what is at stake, if only they wanted to see. Yet, argues Nootmans, the church found a way he calls this natural theology. 
to ignore this intention of the parable because they did not want to see. The church uses the doctrine of providence to argue that the great chasm between the rich man and beggar is natural, simply a given, a fact, the way of life, which cannot be changed and should not be challenged. The church is more concerned with the sins of the tax collector than with the wounds of Lazarus. In Dutch, Nordmans uses a wordplay, sins and wounds are zonden and wonden. The church cares more about the zonden than the wonden. This comparison leads him to rhetorical questions with radical implications. Is the church actually proclaiming the full gospel? Does Lazarus really have to receive salvation in the same way as the sinner? Is the church not preventing many from entering the gates of heaven? Should we really read the Gospels through the lenses of Paul and Luther and expect of Lazarus to become like a tax collector? For so many in our world, he says, the conflict between rich and poor is much more existential and much more real than the conflict between pride and humility. He can hardly imagine that Jesus saw the beggar in Luke 16 as a potential Pauline Christian. It would be anachronistic, but it would also be false, preposterous, and absurd, he says. According to Luke, Lazarus believed with his souls, with his total wretchedness. His poverty and his wretchedness brings him in heaven. Wretchedness in Dutch, elende, the same word that Barfing used uh, in the first lecture. In the gospel, material need is directly related to the coming of God's reign. God is teaching the church of their time this truth once again in new ways, Nordmans claims. God is breaking down the bulwarks of their natural theology. God is calling attention to Lazarus, attention for the beggar in addition to the sinner. There are two forms of wretchedness and misery, he says, darkness for the soul and darkness for the body. They do not always go together and may even exclude one another. There can be physical wretchedness and misery and suffering that occupy people so much that they find no room or time for inward disciplines. Beggars do not have to feel themselves sinners. Their misery may take the place of their sin, he says. There is in the Bible also a gospel of the poor, that also needs to be proclaimed. The two messages together form two sides of the same proclamation of God's election and God's grace and God's reign. The church has often neglected the message of the comforting Christ, he says. The church are full of miracles, 
The Gospels are full of miracles and healings which hardly play any role in the church's proclamation and life. However, God is touching their lives in remarkable, even bewildering and embarrassing ways, he concludes. The church is learning that there is more in the gospel than what the church has already understood. The reformed doctrine of election may help us to see the world differently. According to Warfield, election reminds us that when the world looks lost according to our moral calculations, it is not lost at all. In the light of God's immeasurable love, the divisions we make between good and evil are never final. We should never measure the saving work of God by our unripe days since the sands of time have not run their course. Election helps us to regard others, even the most unworthy and degraded, as objects of God's eternal love, so that there is hope for even the most wretched, according to Barfink. The election vibrating through the Gospels helps us see Jesus' preference for those most wretched in our eyes, both sinners and beggars, all of them in a special way worthy in God's sight, according to Nordmans. In order to develop the reformed doctrine of election, it may therefore be necessary to appeal to the tradition against the tradition. When Karl Barth discusses the miracles of Jesus, he asks with surprise how it could happen that Protestantism so completely overlooked this whole dimension of the gospel, this message of merciful and unconditional liberation from death and wrong and evil powers. How could Protestantism orientate itself so one-sidedly to the problem of repentance and became so moralistic and indifferent to real human questions? Barth asks. It puts us to shame that we did not see this, he says. In the miracles, Jesus turns to all those with whom things are going badly those needy and frightened and harassed. We may turn away from this. We may close our eyes. But Jesus' action is always in response to human misery. He finds and sees people in the shadow of death. And his miraculous action brings them out of the shadow, frees them from the prison, unburdens them, releases them. They can be people again whole people in the most elemental sense. In this, God is glorified. God places God's self at the side of God's creatures. That which causes suffering to human beings is also painful and alien to God's self, Bart says. God does not will whatever troubles and torments and disturbs and destroys human beings. 
The sorrow which openly or secretly fills the heart of people is primarily in the heart of God. The shame which comes on people is primarily a violation of God's own glory. The enemy who does not let people breathe, harassing them with fear and pain, is primarily God's enemy. Jesus defies the powers of destruction which enslave people, and the miracles reveal the power of mercy, not quiet and passive, but active and hostile to those destructive powers on behalf of wretched people. This is how the Reformed tradition on occasion spoke about election and saw the world differently so that no one may lose hope, not even the most wretched in our eyes. John Calvin spoke the same way and called the church to see in others something that we simply cannot see with our natural eyes. The Lord enjoins us to do good to all without exception, though the greatest number of human beings, if estimated by their own merit, may be most unworthy of it in our own eyes, Calvin said. Scripture tells us not to look at what people in themselves deserve, he says, but to attend to the image of God, which exists in all, and to which we owe all honor and love. Therefore, whoever that person may be that needs our assistance, we have no ground for declining to give it to them. Say it is a stranger, Calvin says. Then the Lord has given that person a mark which ought to be familiar to us, since God forbids us to despise our own flesh. Say that person is mean and of no consideration, he adds. Then the Lord still points him or her out to us as one whom God has distinguished by the luster of God's own image. Say that we are bound to those people by no ties of duty. Then the Lord has substituted himself, as it were, into their place, so that in them we may recognize the obligations we owe to the Lord himself. Say that these people are unworthy of our least exertion. Then the image of God is still worthy of all our exertion. Even if such persons have provoked us by injury and mischief, he says, still this is no good reason why we should not embrace them in love. That person has deserved very differently from us, we may object. Yet precisely in this way, we may attain what is not only difficult, but altogether against nature, namely to love those that hate us, to render good for evil, blessing for curse, remembering that we are not to reflect on the wickedness of people, but to look to the image of God in them, an image which, covering and obliterating their faults, should by its beauty and dignity allure us to love and embrace them. Still earlier, Martin Luther already spoke the same way and called the church to see in others 
something that we simply cannot see with our natural eyes. The final theological thesis of the Heidelberg Disputation, Thesis 28, uh, in which he developed his theology of the cross, claimed that God's love does not find, but creates that which is pleasing to it. The wretched are attractive because they are loved, not loved because they are attractive, said Luther. The love born of the cross confers good upon wretched and needy. The natural mind is a respecter of persons and judges according to what can be seen, he says. But the eyes of faith see something hidden, deeper, higher objects of God's eternal love. This would become his famous definition of faith when he discussed the well-known Hebrews 11. Haik enem is natura fidei, natura videre quat non videt, et non videre quat videt. The nature of faith is to see what we do not see and not to see what we do see. Faith is to see the unseen, the not yet visible, and thus not to see what our natural eyes do see, to see differently. Hebrews 11 says of the parents of Moses that they were hiding the baby by faith because they saw that the child was beautiful. Verse 23. And thereby showing, he adds, that they were not afraid of the king's edict of the very real and visible powers of the rulers of their day. The author obviously did not mean that the child was beautiful in the way that all infants are beautiful, because this would not illustrate the point, the argument. Now they saw something in the baby that normal human eyes could not see, something that only hope could imagine. Calvin said that they saw some future excellency, promise of something extraordinary. They were inspired by the hope of an approaching deliverance, looking at the baby. One can almost hear the, the as if of the future in his words. Through faith they saw a beautiful future which was not yet there to be seen, but was worthwhile acting upon as if it were already real and true. That is the reason, says Hebrews, why they did not fear the powers and refused to obey the king. Of course they feared the king's power. But this invisible beauty was stronger than their fear. On the one hand, all of this reflects a way of seeing and speaking that we know well in our time. The sociologist Hans Joas published what he calls an alternative genealogy of human rights called the sacredness of the person. And he tells the story how the widespread respect for human dignity and human rights today gradually developed through a process in which we have learned to see people differently, irrespective of who they are, and to respect their sacredness. We have learned not to harm and not to wrong them 
and not to deny them their inherent dignity. On the other hand, one cannot deny that this way of seeing and speaking is deeply contested in our time, controversial and rejected by many. Political theologians often struggle with the reality that many of us see our so-called neighbors as threats and dangers. They often engage with Freud's argument in civilization and its discontents that the command to love our neighbor is unnatural. It inhibits and oppresses our feelings of desire and competition and aggression. Like Calvin, so many in our time agree that loving the neighbor is not only difficult, but altogether against nature. And many then draw opposite conclusions than Calvin. In his Trouble with Strangers, the British literary critic and social commentator Terry Eagleton analyzes how difficult it is for us to live with others. He calls his book a study of ethics and argues that a radical theological version of the Judeo-Christian tradition provides a richer ethics to deal with these difficulties than contemporary ethical theories. It may well be a dismal sign of the times, he says, that it is to the science of God of all things that we must look for such subversive insights. But there is no reason to look a gift horse in the mouth. Could it perhaps be possible from a reformed perspective to say that without the radical language of the doctrine of election with which our tradition sometimes spoke, our world would indeed have looked much different, full of trouble and full of strangers, yes, monsters, enemies, wretched others whom we would rather not accept and welcome and embrace, whom we would prefer to keep apart, separate, outside our walls. But that with the doctrinal doctrine of election, vibrating in the Gospels, and carrying Paul to praise and doxology, it may just be possible to recognize sacredness and beauty and glory where would we would perhaps have expected it least.